Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that's got demons running amok. That's Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the best and the only podcast history of the devil on the internet. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, what's up tonight? What's going on? Well, it's wonderful being your partner in heresy, Klaus. I just really appreciate that title. I've always wanted to be called a heretic. It's happened several times, but this is maybe my favorite time. You might be you might be a heresiarch. You might even go beyond a heretic. You might be a heresiarch. Wow, I really hope so. Um, maybe co-heresiarch is the title I've been working for all these years. Shout out to Beverly Kingsley, who first taught me about heresy. Shout out to her. Should she be listening? I am thrilled to have been doing this with you for a year. I... I love hearing from our fans as well. Some of them reach out by Twitter. Some of them reach out through Instagram. There are lots of different ways to get in touch with us, but please keep that up. That keeps us motivated, keeps us wanting to do more of this work. It's super fun, but it's a lot more fun when we hear from you. So thanks for listening. Let's keep this up together. Yeah, exactly. One year ago. Yeah, it's crazy. One year ago, as we're recording this on September 14th, uh, September 14th, 2020, we published the first episode. So yeah, we're, we're super excited for that milestone. Um, But yeah, this week, we're profiling some of the biggest theologians on the block in the fourth century, the Cappadocian fathers, those urban terrors of Turkey, Gregory, Gregory, and Basil. Basil, Basil, we're gonna have one of those things, right? We'll call I say Basil. Basil seems right, right? Basil. Um, what do I say? I say Basil, of course, because let's do Basil. Right. We'll say Basil. We're agreeing. I don't know if I like that. I think I like it better when we have separate <laughs> pronunciations. I think it's more fun. So I do have to say it's wonderful to be back in the fourth century. Um, really, any century that is not this century is kind of fun to go to escape to. Um, the Cappadocian fathers are regarded as the saviors of Nicene Christianity. So what the hell is that? So an idea we've touched on occasionally is the Trinity. Maybe you've heard of it. The idea that the that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all related or unified in some way. When Christianity became officially recognized in the Roman Empire in the 4th century, shout out to the 4th century again, with the blessing of the Emperor Constantine, there was a disagreement about the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Was there perhaps some sort of pecking order? In other words, so you've got Arius of Alexandria, Uh, who in some ways was following the thoughts of and writings of Origen. And Arius affirmed that, yes, there was a kind of pecking order here. God the Father created the Son out of nothing. And so because of that, drawing from that, he said, well, then there is an order of preference and holiness. God the Father is on top here. Emperor Constantine, not thrilled about this controversy that's dividing his empire, So if Rome was to have one empire, one major religion like Christianity needed to have, you guessed it, one rule book, one story, if you will, that explains how everything in the religion is supposed to work. That's how you build an empire, right? So at a council at Nicaea, now Iznik in Turkey, a council of bishops repudiated the idea of the son's subordination. So the son is not any some sort of like lesser God to the father, but instead said that the son and the father were, quote, of one substance or homoousios in Greek. So, yeah, there was that defeat for Arius. I think Arius is said to have died on the toilet, uh, exiled in a monastery in Egypt, uh, a fact that his enemies uh, were not exactly generous about in remembering him. Uh But his ideas kept coming back in the following decades and would even win some battles, including the backing of Constantine II. You know, you had Constantine I, well, we got the second one. Bigger and better here. Uh, Some theologians tried to compromise by... 
Wait, are you saying that the sun has... I thought you were saying that the son was not the same as <laughs> right. the father, but here you're saying that Constantine the second. Anyway, yeah, sorry, I know. Terrible. I know. Terrible what, a, what a what a really unfortunate stroke of luck for the Aryans to have the son, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> to be their, their <laughs> political savior. Um, but yeah, so this this idea stuck around that, and you know, it sort of makes sense. Fathers are older than sons. They're uh, bigger usually for a while anyway uh, there's like some... are you speaking are you speaking as a father right no, now no, or just as, as a, a son as a, as a just, cold observer okay. of humanity yeah um got it perfect perfect yeah. okay uh but anyway yeah the idea sticks around uh some theologians try to compromise by adding an extra letter to homoousios an extra iota to make it homoousios which instead of meaning of one substance means similar in substance um as you can see this is sort of a halfway fix um and they were dubbed the, the semi-arians you know it, like uh like semi-sweet chocolate bar semi-arians this sort of thing um <laughs> the rest of their neo-arian peers were called dissimilarians because they asserted more pointedly and aggressively that the son was actually not like the father at all man i can see we're making a lot of progress here uh in this debate so this reminds me of this Cantonese phrase that I just learned, and I'm definitely about to botch, so I apologize already. But there's this there's this idiom which is m sam m se, which is not three, not four, and it's kind of like neither fish nor fowl. It's this position that's uh, that doesn't fit in any neat category and i think the semi-arians the sort of problem with the position is that they're trying to split the difference here in a way that doesn't really make any sense to anyone in the theological debate like like trying to be a political moderate doesn't really make a lot of sense these days sometimes <laughs> for example <laughs> yeah anyway so this is where these uh these cappadocian squires come into the picture uh they're aristocratic highly educated gents from cappadocia in modern day turkey really educated in greek philosophy rhetoric but also third generation christians two of the mayor major players in the scene uh basil the political mind of the bunch and his younger brother gregory of nyssa had a grandmother who converted through the efforts of one of origin's students gregory thaumaturgos or wonder worker that's what thaumaturgos means the third of the Cappadocians was another Gregory, Gregory Natsianus, who was known as the orator of the bunch. So you have like Gregory as the theologian, uh, Basil as the, the political boss, and the other Gregory as a, a smooth talker. Uh, Basil became bishop of Caesarea and eventually made his brother and friend bishops to consolidate power for the Nicene cause. Sweet. Gotta love that, like, power broker status going on. Like, well, I'll just make you a bishop so that we can, like, take over. That's how I solve all my problems. Same, same. But it was a political fight, as much as anything. Big surprise that Christianity would ally itself with power in some way in this era. Hashtag Constantine. Or in any era, really. And the Cappadocians succeeded by peeling away one side of the Neo-Aryan coalition. And who would that be? The semi-sweet Aryans. The semi-sweet Aryans. Yeah, semi-sonic. Anyway, um, but they did so with theological persuasion. I mean, that's how I win all of my battles, by the way, is with theological persuasion. I just thought I would let you know. Um, how did they do this? They reframed the issue. Their harshest opponents, who argued for no similarity between father and son, honed in on the words used to account for the son from the creed namely, begotten, not made. They said that if the son were begotten, there needed to be a begetter, right? God, who would, God's self, be unbegotten. The mic drop from the Cappadocians was to say, you're just playing games with words and concepts, but none of these really map onto God at all, who is incomprehensible. Boom, burn it down. So what we get from scripture via language is just this pale reflection of the reality that is God, that thing that is itself off limits. So when we go back to this language of unbegotten for the father and only begotten for the son, those are just names that are only vaguely, and this is key, analogically 
uh, signifying for something that is not a strict hierarchy or some discrete objective quantum. Definitely not that, but instead a kind of complicated love triangle. The father is the one who loves, the son is the beloved, and the spirit is the love itself. Ain't that sweet. You might be asking yourself, so this sounds great and all, maybe a little complicated, but where does it, what does it get them? Where does it lead them? What's their solution that actually appeals to the semi-sweet Aryans? The Cappadocians do affirm that we know about the actions or operations of God as they are relayed in scripture and through the sacraments. The three persons of the Trinity all share in the same being or essence of the Godhead, that's why it's still monotheism, guys, while retaining distinct modes of being or hypostases, honoring the language and characterizations of these distinct ways of being in the New Testament or ways of operating. We know about these modes of being through their salvific economy, which is a fancy way of saying the things they actually do to help humanity. This economy slash help does not represent a division of labor between three different beings, but a unity of operations, like an action through which salvation and grace begin with the father, are accomplished by the son and perfected by the spirit. Again, with the caveat that this is all human language and it's like a very rough approximation. Though it should be noted that there's a kind of irony about the Cappadocians dunking on the Aryans for playing games with words and semantics, well, they themselves distinguish between ousia being and hypothesis person to make this argument to the semi-sweet Aryans, which basically means the same thing in Greek, that is ousia and hypothesis. Ousia is being translated in Latin as substantia or just substance, which you can hear pretty readily, which literally means that which lies beneath, which is exactly what hypothesis means in Greek. So just keep shuffling those cards, guys, until it all makes sense. Keep shuffling, keep shuffling. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're still shuffling. So somehow this was persuasive enough to the semi-Aryans, the semi-sweet Aryans, to make a dent. But luck and politics, big surprise, also cleared the way. Emperor Valens, who was supporting the Aryans, died in battle. Wah, wah. And the general who came out on top was Theodosius from Spain, who was hardcore anti-Aryan. He convened the Council of Constantinople in 381 to get the last word in on the Trinity, and it was Gregory Nazianzus, now Patriarch of Constantinople, who presided over the council. Helps to have friends in high places, as, you know, the right-wingers know with the Supreme Court at the moment. Okay, okay, before this gets really bitter, we need to say something about what any of this has to do with the subject of the podcast, ostensibly, which is the devil. And this takes us into one of the most confusing topics of all time, and I really mean that, as if the Trinity weren't confusing enough. The question of how Jesus dying on the cross helps human beings, aka the atonement. The Cappadocians go for this apocalyptic Pauline idea, an idea by, you know, from St. Paul we talked about a while back, that Christ's death on the cross is a decisive victory against the devil. Yeah, it's very easy to be confused by this part, even though we're moving into a more practical part of theology, right? From the inner Trinitarian relations we were talking about before, who is the father as opposed to the son as opposed to the spirit. Well, now we're actually talking about how God interacts with human beings. So it seems like we're moving toward a pragmatic part of theology, and yet it's still confusing. A guy dies, you know, Jesus, you may have heard of him, and the satanic ruler of the cosmic empire somehow takes the L. There's an image that develops around a few centuries later of the cross extending downward, like the roots of some invasive killer plant hitching a ride on an Amazon package. To quote a Byzantine hymn by Romanos the Melodae, quote, the cross planted on Golgotha descends deep into the earth where it impales the body of Hades, who cries, who has fixed a nail in my heart? A wooden lance has suddenly pierced me, and I am being torn apart. All right, so you're trying to use this to explain how the death on the cross beats the devil. And getting all this fancy hemnity from from Constantinople, but I didn't read any of this in the Bible. What is all this stuff? Yeah, listen, it's amazing, and you're welcome. 
<laughs> I found this in my research and I feel like we are providing a service right now. So you're welcome. That is my response. Value added. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about this victory. <laughs> in this period of time, the fourth century of the common era, the notion that God beats the devil through a kind of trickery or deceit was really growing in currency. Why? Because of the counterintuitiveness of Christ's crucifixion as a victory over anyone. Uh, yeah. So this rationale goes back at least as far as our buddy Origen, shout out to Origen, who found strange imagery in the Hebrew Bible to support this notion of a kind of deceptive victory, if you will. So particularly, he found this quotation from Joshua chapter 8, verse 29. Fun fact, Joshua, spelled the same, it's the same name really um, in Greek as Jesus. That's where Jesus gets, or otherwise, Jesus was named Joshua. Okay, there you go. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) So Joshua hanged the king of Guy on a double tree. That's your Bible quote for the day. Maybe you should put it in a greeting card. (laughs) I think like it's kind of, (laughs) that's your inspirational quote, y'all. Maybe stitch it on a pillow. Um, Anyway. So Origen sees this, this verse from Joshua of all places as illuminating Christ's victory over the devil in the passion, right? So remember that Joshua is kind of working for us right now. Jesus is standing in for Joshua in Origen's reading of the verse, which is again, Joshua hanged the king of Guy on a double tree. So what does that mean? So the king of Guy, Origen writes, can stand for the devil, but how he came to be crucified on a forked tree is worth investigating. It certainly is. Let's go there. Everyone, get out your magnifying glasses. We're going investigating with origin. The cross of Christ was a double cross. You might think it's a strange and novel idea when I say that the cross was double, but what I mean is that it can be considered as double or from two sides because the <gasps> su- I know, I know, <laughs> y'all. It's so good right now. Um, because the son of God was crucified visibly in the flesh, but invisibly on the same cross, the devil with his principalities and powers was nailed to the cross. And here he's loosely, uh, referencing Colossians 2, 14 through 15, which we have also discussed before when we were talking about the principalities and powers in a previous episode. Okay. So the devil was nailed to the cross with Jesus invisibly, according to Origen. But how did he get there, Klaus? Okay, I'm going to take that complicated set of images and turn to an even more complicated one in order to explain it right now. So just just bear with me because I know this is going to go really smoothly. Um, (laughs) So we're going to turn to the theologian of the bunch of Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa, who introduces one of the most evocative and controversial images for conceiving of the salvific victory of the atonement, a fish hook. And no, I don't mean a wrestling move. This is what Gregory has to say. Klaus, we all know what that wrestling move is, just so you know. Like, everyone knows what a fish hook is. So you don't need to explain it to anyone like me, for example. Like, because I already get it. So it's fine. (laughs) I think it was actually even, like, in, like, like like bare knuckle boxing or something. I don't even know if it like probably in the WWF in the eighties cool. doing fish hooks. I I'll don't be know. I'll be googling it later. Don't worry about it. Please continue. Yeah, yeah. No, gotcha. Okay. So the deity was hidden under the veil of our nature. Gregory's talking about Jesus there. So that as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down alongside with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or of death to exist when life is active. There, I I explained everything right there, right? Well, okay. Um, I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Okay, fun fact. I also feel like this could be the house of death really, really struck me this time. It sounds like... um, a drag ball in the 1980s New York ball scene, like a drag ball that's like super goth. Um, yeah, I'll just cool. let you all, maybe, you know, maybe the fans will reach out to us with potential illustrations of that. We'll see. So it seems like G Nissa, our favorite, right? Um, Gregory, it seems like he drew this image of catching the devil with a fish hook from, you guessed it, the Bible. Yes. Job 40 verse 25. You shall catch the dragon with the fish hook. 
Okay, so dragon. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. <laughs> I, there, there you go. Um, it also appears in Psalm 104:26 and Isaiah 27:1. This fish hook image, and all of this to me just reminds me a lot of Leviathan, this like sea monster, the dragon, etc. The fish hook image is also related to a key phrase from Psalm 22 that Gregory of Nyssa's idea circles around. And that quote is, I am a worm and not a man, okay? How does this all work together? Because the bait was a worm, right? On the fish hook. And thus Christ on the cross was kind of like a worm on a fish hook, okay? For you fishers out there. Also, I heard a, a country song recently that was like, he doesn't even know how to bait a hook. It was this like hyper masculine, like he drives a Prius was mentioned in the song. And I was very sad about it. I was like, I get that we can have like a city country divide and I'm totally okay with that. But I just feel like maybe we don't need to like denigrate the masculinity of people who care about the environment. I'm probably alone on this though. So anyway, okay, back to the worm. I want to say something about the worm. The worm is really important also to pseudo Dionysius, whom we have talked about before, he uses the various names of God, right? Um, and you're supposed to sort of say and unsay the names of God to detach yourself from the idea that we are in any way capturing the divine essence when we name God. And one of his key uh, names for God that is sort of the most dissim dissimilar to God is worm, which he takes from a kind of Christological reading of Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man. Um, and so we're supposed to practice kind of distancing ourselves from literal, overly literal readings of scripture, according to Pseudo Dionysius. You um, affirm all the names of God, starting with the easy ones and going to the difficult ones. So easy, God is good, God exists, etc. The hard ones to affirm, God is a worm, right? Hard to affirm. And similarly, you unsay the names of God, starting with the easy ones. In this case, God is drunk, God is a worm, these easy biblical names for God to deny. And then you move to the more difficult ones, ending with God does not exist. God is not. Yeah, and this all like fits together with uh, something we'll be talking about through the whole episode, which is like illusions and deception. Um, and that seems to be key to uh, using the negative theological method to sort through names as representations that can be potentially misleading. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as a, as a tie-in. And we'll, of course, we'll find, we'll find time in our, our busy podcast schedule for many things to be said about pseudo Dionysius. So don't worry about that, all of you theological nerds. <laughs> um, but one thing to pull out from all this is that there's some poetic justice in the image of, of Jesus as a, a worm on a hook. And the, and the hook, as Gregory says, is divinity. It's a hook that the devil bites at his own risk, even though he thinks he's getting a juicy worm. Uh, Gregory explains the sort of poetic justice when he explains that the devil secured the fall of humans by disguising vice, lust, disobedience with a beautiful appearance. But I guess he means that's like the ripe fruit of the apple or or like their their bodies as attractively newly formed bodies. So the devil took vice and disguised it as something beautiful, as a way of capturing human beings. And so God does something analogous or homologous to the devil by having this human that appeared interesting and attractive and maybe even better than all the humans, because that's part of the idea, is that the devil is trading rights for humanity for for Jesus, because Jesus seems to be the best of the human beings. And so, again, there's this deception going on where it's like, okay, yeah, you got this great deal, but there's there's a there's a jagged barb in there that's going to catch on your fishy cheek. The fishy cheeks of the devil slash Leviathan. We've talked a little bit about with Adam and Eve, why there's a temptation there, like what's attractive. But when it comes to Leviathan or the devil, why does he gulp down the bait, hook and all? right? Jesus has all this power. Remember all the exorcisms, healings, feedings, etc. And Gregory explains that the devil is willing to trade rights for all of humanity, living and dead, thinking that by getting Jesus, he's getting the better end of the bargain. But Jesus's divinity serves as the hook. 
the devil oversteps himself by claiming the power of life and death over the sole true ruler of the cosmos. Yeah, it's just not going to work out, right? In this way, the devil becomes ensnared, and I guess if we extend the metaphor, then the fish monster has to let go of the rest of humanity when the hook pierces his mouth. Like, or you can also think of maybe like the hell mouth yeah. as kind of vom- vomiting back up the contents, you know, from Hades. Right. So yeah. all of the dead. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's sort of that hell mouth seems to be invoking dragon Leviathan images too, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's cool. Yes, definitely. Um, so how did we get here in the first place? We can't have a good diabology demonology chat without agonizing over how the devil got in this position in the first place. According to Gregory, Satan fell in the beginning out of jealousy for human happiness. Uh, and this sounds, this sounds a little bit like Irenaeus to me, if I can stretch my mind back that far. This jealousy caused him to close his eyes to the good and turn toward what was base. Uh, in, in other words, it, cl- it caused the devil to stop paying attention to his like superior intellect and his God-given instincts to be good and to serve God and love God and focus on, I guess, also the false appearances of what could be good or what could make him more powerful or what would be more satisfying. But this is like a deliberate choice to stop paying attention to to reason and to divine law and all these things. Um, so it's interesting how it's envy rather than pride, which is the main catalyst here, which I think is different than some other, I think of Milton as, as sort of the obvious, the obvious choice. Um, but there's this sense that pride is like one of the highest, highest in scare quotes, uh, vices. It's like sort of the most angelic or terrible vices. And so it's interesting how the story sort of changes each time it's told. Um, and Gregory Nazianzus, God, I'm saying that right. Gregory. Oh, Nazianzus. But also I just want to mention that Gregory also mentions in, in addition to describing jealousy, he definitely mentions pride as a special vice of Satan. So I would say that it's a little bit of a blended model. And that is in the Great Catechism. It definitely does come up like as uh, jealousy sort of that grows from pride for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Yeah. Using jealousy as a way to play up the special relationship God has with human beings. You can see where pride and, and envy blend together there. Yeah, so Gregory Nanzianzus writes some amazing verse about the fall to sort of uh, flesh it out a little bit more. He writes, Satan did not slip alone, but after arrogance destroyed him, you know, again, pride, there fell with him a multitude, as many as he'd schooled in evil. Therefore, there sprang from them evil beings on earth, demons, minions to the murderous king of evil, langurs, shades, ill-boding phantasms of the night, liars and revilers, instructors in sin, bamboozlers, souses, seducers, party animals. Man. Yeah, that's a a real um, rogues gallery. Party animals and bamboozlers. The demons were really at work, those in particular in the Garden of Eden, but maybe most especially in the rugby house I lived in as a college student. Fair, uh, fair point. <laughs> yeah. It's important for the Cappadocians that humanity willingly went in with the devil. In Gregory's words, they sold themselves into slavery by their own free will. Okay, this part gets so weird for me. Like, where is Gregory coming up with this concept of slavery that is about selling yourself? Gregory locates the great moral failing of slavery, in other words, in the people who sell themselves into slavery, whom he describes as they who have bartered away their freedom for money. And I get where he's going theologically. I know who he's talking about here, but I just couldn't think of any referent in what the little I know of fourth century slavery. Like, that's just not how slavery works. And it is probably worth mentioning that I differ with him on where to locate the evil in the institution of slavery. Just putting it out there. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And yeah, it is very strange. Um, and yeah, I, I, there is good scholarship out there on ancient slavery. Uh, and it's, it would be worth knowing if what he's talking about has any basis in fact at all. But yeah, it does sound like a kind of contorted explanation for what's for, for something again, 
that never literally actually happens in the in the stories that he's talking about. I wonder, you know, maybe it's just a sort of a strange turn of phrase to try and capture the theological and he's actually getting at debtor's prison or something. That could be, I, I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Back to what we were saying. Gregory is talking about people who sold themselves into slavery by their own free will. Clearly who he's really referencing, this is the fall of humanity. He's talking about human beings and sin here, right? Yeah, exactly. And according to this story, this fall, this uh, sale, gives the devil legal rights over humanity. They enter into a bad kind of contract, bad for humanity. Though I must say again, uh, right, like none of this actually appears as a contract in the Bible. Again, like you're saying, like it's, it's sort of, it's like this formalizing, legalizing of these moments of disobedience. But like one act of disobedience equals selling your life away. That's some fine print you got to watch out for. Uh, <laughs> we, we do have Satan haggling with Jesus to try to get him to obey him in, in the temptations in the, in the desert. This seems like the closest thing you see to selling yourself into slavery in the Bible. And we're, and Gregory's talking about way before that. So it, it's, it's, I don't know that it's, it's strange and how loaded and how much his language seems, seems to be charged with his own contemporary associations with debasement. Sure. And if we zoom out a little bit here, thinking about this contractual way of reading the fall of humanity, we can fit this under the kind of category of atonement that we've referred to before called Christus Victor, right? Um, for which Irenaeus was the real innovator. This is Christ the victor. Although Irenaeus does not make the legal aspect of Satan's domination of humanity explicit in the way that we see here. He sees it as unbecoming of divinity for God to just snatch humanity back. For Gregory of Nyssa, God can't seek justice by breaking a legitimate contract. So he has to trick the devil into forfeiting humanity, and it has to be acknowledged by the devil as totally fair without, quote, some color of complaint. So no complaints, Klaus, for a long time. <laughs> it's not allowed. For a long time, respectable theologians of modernity had nothing but disdain for Gregory's idea of tricking the devil out of his prize. It seemed, well, unbecoming of God. God doesn't play tricks. God isn't ringing your doorbell, demanding candy, and toilet paper in your yard. Or at least some dudes in tweed blazers chewing on pipes would have you believe. What's odd about the blazered complaints is that it's not as if Gregory doesn't see their pipe-chewing criticism coming from a mile away. He has a whole section about it, which boils down to basically, you need to look at the bigger picture, you squares. Paying back the devil what is owed while saving humanity in the process, it's admittedly a tricky business. And the reason the trick is called for is because the devil didn't just deceive humanity, but he's actively deceiving himself the whole time. By tricking the devil... God is doing one thing beyond the other two we just mentioned. He's helping the devil to see the error of his ways. And that's right. Gregory of Nyssa goes for that sweet, sweet apocatastasis that we discussed earlier this summer in the origin episode. Apocatastasis, a.k.a. universal salvation. Okay, but what accounts for the devil's self-deception? For some theologians, the devil had no idea that Jesus was God incarnate, or he knew completely and was scared out of his wits. Remember that whole Arian controversy thing the Cappadocians are famous for sorting out? This matters for the devil's self-deception because Gregory essentially describes the devil as having the same low Christology as the Arians. Jesus was powerful, you know, a valuable piece to capture off the board, but not all powerful. That's why we call them having, we refer to them as having a low Christology. They didn't think Jesus was all that, right? The devil's falling victim to a Trinitarian Christological heresy, the one that the Cappadocians just happened to be crusading against. And that's perfect evidence of the devil's self-delusion and that God is ready to let the healing begin for this former disgruntled employee. Yeah, and one of the pieces we looked at by Fisher and Kirchhoff, there's this argument that psychologically the devil and human beings aren't all that different. 
especially with respect to God. Satan experiences the incarnation much the same way as humans did. Just if you flip through your your uh, your gospels, just take note of how few people actually get it right when it comes to dealing with Jesus in the gospels. There's not very many people who really have any kind of sense of what's going on. Um, some 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 people who just like grab the hem of his cloak, you know, that's about it. Uh, it would have been very rational for the devil to fear Jesus and just stay the f away. That's probably what he should have done. Uh, but Satan thinks he deserves to take possession of Christ because it will show his superiority over all of humanity. This goes back to his envy of human happiness and, of course, his pride at wanting to dominate this uh, human on steroids that he seemed to take Jesus for. He fools himself into thinking he can win a battle through subtlety in which he's clearly overmatched. Does that justify divine deception, though, Travis? This this sense that the devil is like this this fool who needs to be scared straight. Well, yeah, this is an important theological question, right? Because this can get God in some really hot water. Um, so let's turn to some of our friends to see what they think about it, right? People like Origen, whom we've talked about before, and Augustine also make a distinction between <laughs> lying and deception. And this sounds like such a lawyer move, right? Oh, yes. Or, <laughs> right? or put differently, how the devil or God might mislead a person. Okay? So God's deception is understood by Origen as pedagogical in the same way that a child might be told, okay, if you are a child, you should stop listening. Right <laughs> Spoiler now. alert. Spoiler alert, do not be a child and continue listening. Thank you. All right, we're continuing on. So God's deception is understood by or origin as pedagogical in the same way that a child might be told, here it comes, that Santa Claus exists in order to help incentivize good behavior. Um, that was not obviously origin's <laughs> example, by the way. For Augustine, whose seven heads, 10 horns treatment is coming up soon, y'all. Stay tuned. God lies to people to break their pride and teach them to love their neighbors. But, you know, he's lying in, in a wholesome way, right? Most of his examples are about misinterpreting scripture, acting too clever by half, and then being humbled. And this is all just to say that there's room for the right kind of lying in this particular thought world, as long as it comes from God. You can just flip through the Bible and find moments when folks are misunderstanding God where the Bible just doesn't make a ton of sense. Okay, yeah, just to circle back around to the main idea, uh, after we've had this this great like sort of discursus, excursus on deception. So let's just get this all laid out here. Satan is like this Megatron fish who eats a worm who's Jesus, but who overreaches, bites a God hook, and by doing has lost all all of humanity while trying to bite Jesus. He forfeits rights to Jesus too, because he fell victim to his own deception, which happens to match up really nicely with the Arian heresies underestimation of Christ's powers and person. The image of consuming Christ puts Satan again in homologous position as members of the church who consume Christ through the Eucharist. They're both, you know, Satan's trying to eat Jesus and people going to communion are eating Jesus there's, there's a link there, believe me. And like for the members of the body of Christ, the members of the church who are partaking of the Eucharist, Gregory argues that Satan's punctured cheek is actually good for him. You had that hook coming, buddy. But there's also hope in the image of the fish hook as cure. Um, because if we think about it, there's going to be pain to the devil's pride and pain in, you know, biting a fish hook. But if the problem is the devil's self-deception, the fact that he's closed his eyes to reason, at least now the pain of the divine hook will cause him to open his eyes as he screams in anguish at being hooked by God the angel. Wow. Great. Great, right? Um, I'm sorry. I just need to congratulate you on that very particular, that like filling out of the metaphor. Really loving that. So what does this all mean for Gregory's larger theological view. His apocatastasis is uniquely optimistic among the Cappadocians. It's interesting that by reputation, Gregory was the greatest theological mind of the bunch, and he also had the least formal education on the subject. All the Cappadocians have a heavy strain of origin in their sort of inheritance 
uh, from their teachers when it comes to Christian theology. And Nyssa really brings that to the surface, though we've already discussed the controversy as to whether Origen really went all the way with full-blooded universal salvation for the freaking devil. It actually seems more straightforward with Nyssa, who takes Philippians 2, 10 through 11. This is from the Kenosis hymn for all y'all Kenosis fans out there to, quote, declare that all rational beings will eventually bow before the name of Jesus, that is, angels in heaven, humans on earth, and demons under the earth. So getting everybody in that sort of uh, economy of salvation here. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that in the original source for Gregory's uh, wildly optimistic apocatastasis view, on the soul of resurrection, he establishes the controversial point through the genre of a dialogue between himself or someone modeling him and a female teacher, Macrina. Macrina is Gregory's own sister and Basil's sister as well. And she is the teacher who really needs to push him to get behind the idea of universal salvation of souls because he's resistant like his brother and his friend. And I guess most other people who happen to be Christian from there on out. Uh, (laughs) So he's not ever really pretending that uh, universal salvation is just common sense. It actually requires this, this really rigorous philosophical investigation. But to boil it down, through the dialogue, we get the idea that souls are immortal. And it doesn't matter where they are in the cosmos, whether in heaven or in hell or any place in between. Nothing shall be left outside the world of goodness. Macrina says. Their brother, Basil, did not really share in this level of cosmic optimism, choosing to see the demons as bowing down to Christ from the Kenosis hem as a way of saying that the demons will submit only insofar as they perform the grim service of torturing souls in hell for all eternity. Man, can you imagine the fights these boys had as kids? Disagreements like that. Very long-winded is all I have to say. Very (sighs) long-winded fights. Long time unwitting correspondent Adam Kotzko makes some interesting points about Gregory's universalism and how it functions in a world of imperial Constantinian Christianity. It's interesting that Gregory's universalism with its generosity, if you will, towards Satan arrives around the time when Constantine was converted to Christianity, akin to, if you will, the devil converting to Christianity in earlier theological paradigms. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. For Kotzko, the universalism is a respite from the vindictiveness of the earlier apocalyptic paradigm where everyone you didn't like ended up in the lake of fire. Okay, but I kind of liked that. Like, that was sort of, (laughs) like, can we keep... uh, Oh, well, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, right, like, there seems to be a softer, you know, more gentle edge to this whole thing. But that goes together with a lack of oomph when it comes to critiquing worldly power and politics and demanding political justice. So you drop out the apocalyptic fire and brimstone and then you've got the uh, prince of this world now as the patron of the church. Whereas before, when the worldly instantiation of the devil was bad political powers, evil political powers, with patristic Christian theologians of the first few centuries like Gregory and Gregory and, and Basil, that instantiation of the devil shifts from bad politicians to heretics and religious rivals and to, and to Jews. We see this especially in the one piece we read by, um, by Costas, how the devil is convicted of Arian low Christology. So exactly, and, and we're seeing it with, we saw it with Irenaeus too, where it was about um, marginalizing Gnostics. So th- we have the shift from political enemies to idea, heretical enemies. So that adds a bit of context to the diabology and demonology we're seeing with these writers and church leaders. They're demonizing their rivals within or adjacent to Christian theology rather than the political imperial leaders who materialized evil through a brutal political economy. It sort of reminds me, though, of the way conservatives, the sort of academic right, I guess, but beyond that, make everything crudely idealistic. And I'm thinking in particular of the 1776 report, that grand flourish of the Trump administration and the the, uh, beloved child of West Coast Straussian academics who see John C. Calhoun as the true progenitor of identity politics and wokeness and anti-racism. You know, the guy who was the uh, 
one of the inventors of the filibuster and a uh, partisan for states' rights and uh, racist slaveocracies. Uh, it's this way of making ideas and just ideas and the war between good and bad ideas the true subject and struggle of history. And this goes back to this thing I said, I guess, a few episodes ago about Eric Fogelin, who called Nazism the Gnostic heresy of the right, which is to say, oh, if you just become a, if you're a Gnostic, then you're doing the right badly. But if maybe if you're more like, a, you know, Nicene Christian of the right, then you're everything is OK. Uh, it's this obsession with heresy and ideological purity rather than material conditions when it comes to diagnosing political problems that I think really makes this link between the modern, like the right of the 20th century and the 21st century and this way that Christian theologians obsessed with heresy sort of operate. I think I'm speaking for everyone when I say, Klaus, we love it when you get political on us. So keep it up. Um but for now, back to the past, we said before that Gregory's bait and switch atonement theory was, up until recently, highly embarrassing to academic theologians and church historians. This reticence around Gregory's treatment of the devil goes together with basic assumptions that because the Cappadocians were aristocratic, highly educated philosophers of the church, that they didn't take demons very seriously. And while it's true that there isn't a single exclusive treatise on demonology, diabology, we do see how important demons and the devil are at different moments in their theology. This is a lot of what Morena Ludlow's article is about, her piece on uh, demonology and the Cappadocian Fathers. It shows us how demons are not a sideshow when narrating the success of Christianity in this period and before this period. Taking demons seriously was a major part of how Christianity succeeded in the first place. You know, other people thought about demons before they appeared in the Gospel of Mark. And this was certainly true of the highly educated Cappadocians. It wasn't just something that uh, popular street preachers were reduced to. It was something that extended all the way up to these high, ethereal, philosophically oriented church aristocrats. So, uh Historian of Christianity Dale Martin has shown how the idea of superstition developed from antiquity and changed with the rise of Christianity. For philosophers who preceded the Christian movement, superstition, this word we usually just associate with any, any belief in spirits, demons, supernatural powers, for, for the philosophers of antiquity, and I guess for the Cappadocians too, superstition didn't mean the belief in malevolent powers per se, but instead the inability to see how spiritual beings like demons fit into a larger providentially governed cosmos. So demons were real for the educated elites, but you had to keep them in perspective. They played their part in the grand system of being. And I think the other point is that they were real for common people too. So this was a way of bridging the divide. Like educated people were like, yeah, they're demons, but they're part of a big plan. Normal people, poor people were like, these demons are making my life miserable. And early Christians had things to say to both of them. And at the same time, the Cappadocians go for a theory of evil that we've seen before on the pod, like with Origen, for example, called the privative account, which is just the idea that evil is non-being. Evil equals non-being. And evil beings, therefore, are simply ontologically less than good beings. Evil beings, say demons, for example, are parasitic on the goodness of being that is funded by God's grace and that's instantiated in creation when God names everything as fundamentally good that is created. In other words, God is the source of all being and demons are good to the extent that they participate in this being and not to the extent that they don't. This is what is weird about demons. They are ontologically supposed to be lower than humans and yet are more powerful in many ways. Yeah, and so the hierarchy has to work two ways at once, morally as well as ontologically, if that makes any sense. And so humans are theoretically ahead of demons on the moral scale, while in some sense they may be lower on the ontological plane if we're measuring raw power. And so the moral domain of human life is an important site for demonic activity. And reminiscent of some of the imagery we've seen in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Basil writes of two paths in life that are each represented by two angels, one good, one bad, 
urging us down one dark alley or the other. And the demon, to quote Basil, quote, drags his followers through pleasure to destruction. Man, I've been to parties like that. (laughs) Let's be real. Um, And just a quick note on where some of these ideas are coming from. This may remind you a little bit of origin and the idea of humanity as coming into being through falling from the original sort of incorporeal contemplation of the divine when angels, demons, and humans were undifferentiated and just contemplating like they were supposed to, the one. And then they fell into bodies, but in different layers, depending on you know how badly they got distracted from their task of contemplating the divine, angels falling the least, humans second, and then demons falling the furthest. And so I think that there's some background to that sort of ontological hierarchy there that we can trace to origin. But back to... <laughs> the greatest party with the demon dragging his followers through pleasure to destruction. Uh, the most, <laughs> the most demonic of vices it would seem are envy, deceit, and anger, which is really interesting. Remember how anger was associated with late stage demonic temptation in Evagrius in our last episode. Well, Evagrius is a student of the Cappadocians and we saw how important demonology was for his monasticism Anger appears in the thought of the Cappadocians as akin to epilepsy, which was also thought of as a form of demonic possession. So in a fit of rage, the demon has an opening to enter our bodies and souls because in some sense, our guard is down in that moment. Despite that, and we're in familiar territory here, humans are still judged to be responsible, even if anger is basically demonic possession. And I'm totally watching a documentary on a serial killer in Britain in the 80s. There's talk about the distinction between madness and evil, right? Because you have to determine legally this idea of if someone is fit to sort of uh, receive full punishment for, um, uh, for the crimes that have been committed. And this idea of like, well, you've consented by your will opening yourself in some way seems like it has some affinity there with this idea of where does the responsibility sit is it this exterior force or in the case of madness is it this thing that's outside one's control or not anyway good times um in a fit of rage so we have this demon who can enter in in this moment of weakness despite that humans are judged to be responsible even if anger is basically demonic possession basil describes temptation to sin as coming from outside of us, a demonic illness that sickens our eyes in the case of the vice of envy, of course, because it's through envy. It's through our eyes that we envy other things, other people. The demons come into us and become our messy roommates. And that actually is Basil's language. But we still got to keep the place neat and tidy nonetheless. Yeah. And for these theologians, we need to cultivate virtue to ward off the demons and keep our apartments neat. The guy who gets drunk, according to Aristotle, who was a big deal for these Capitation theologians, that person who gets drunk is responsible for what he does, even though he's trashed. So, yeah, there's a a moral responsibility to be temperate, humble, generous, sober, etc., all that boring stuff. But we also need to work with divine grace synergetically to get anything done. Otherwise, the demons are turning our bodies into National Lampoon's Animal House. It's not going to be an orgy. It's a toga party. This is something that I can't wait to develop as we get into the Middle Ages. But the Cappadocians are in on this idea that the demons have bodies. Airy, ultra-thin bodies. It makes me like think of that spooky internet sensation from like 10 years ago, like Slender Man. They're like YouTube movies and and comic-con conventions and stuff anyway they're really thin that is the demons so they can slip through the pores of your skin i guess is the idea they're just like that slight but these weird physical properties link up with another key aspect of demons for the cappadocians and that's their ability to mimic anything and create false impressions and uh the scholar ludlow gets at this really nicely uh when she says their deception of humans involves them mimicking the truly good by showing humans something whose goodness is only skin deep. Envy encourages humans to aspire to be something which they are not and cannot be. Anger causes them to imitate and replicate the anger of an opponent even when there is no rational cause. 
And again, this reminds me of the deception of Adam and Eve, who were shown something good in terms of physical pleasure, but it was divorced from an, a natural ordering willed by God, at least if you follow this, this theological line of reasoning. So demons basically use their powers of mimicry to alter appearances so they can confuse human beings about the context they're in. It's not sinful to be angry as such. Even probably it wasn't sinful for Adam and Eve to have sex. In, and I believe you say it, Augustine has a lot to say about this. Uh, but it's about the way in which this was, this was engaged in. It's about the context with which you become impassioned. Uh, and demons use false appearances basically to get us to fall into inappropriate reactions and misfires. So then demonic deception is something we've tracked for a while now. It's what informs the view of patristic writers, going back to Justin Martyr, that pagan gods were all really just demons. And they used their demonic powers of mimicry to develop idolatrous cults. They're imitating God, if you will, or imitating being gods, even though they are not. But just because they're masters of false appearances doesn't mean demons don't have other powers. Gregory of Nyssa tells the following story about Gregory the Wonderworker, Thaumaturgos, who we've referred to before. At a local feast in honor of a local demon, virtually the whole population gathered in the city's theater for a celebration involving a play. So great was the crowd jostling for the best view that the actors were inaudible and the whole production was halted. In exasperation, a general cry went up from the crowd, Zeus, give us more room. Gregory Thaumaturgos immediately dispatched one of his disciples, warning them that they did not know what they were asking for, but to no avail, for soon the city was engulfed by a terrible plague that created plenty of space in the city by, you know, decimating the population. I love I love how like Gregory's just like sitting there perched watching this <laughs> this scene and he's like, oh, they done messed up now. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like so sending forth his messenger, yeah, his disciple. Like, yes. Oh, man. You know, send Johnny over there. We, we need to we need to straighten these guys out. Um, if we were televangelists, we'd be saying that this ancient text of Gregory Thaumaturgos uh, contained a prophecy for our current days. Uh, OK, but should we become televangelists, though? That's my question. Definitely. Okay. It's like this just so humor or irony to the story. It's it's like, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Demons have powers all right, but just the kind that can hurt you, not the kind that can actually do anything good for you. Any benefits you accrue from the power of demons will be negated in the long run or, in this case, immediately. Well, that's definitely true, but something we see in the research we did for this episode is how especially Gregory of Nyssa, but also the other Cappadocians, play on the similarities between demons, devils, and humanity. Both demons and humans in this worldview are both inside and outside of divine control. Both possess some freedom, but a freedom that is dispensational, that is to say, only functional in a proper span of history. The demons, then, gain power by nudging humans toward abusing their freedom, which gives the demons more space to exercise their freedom. So again, it's parasitic, but there's also kinship. When the Cappadocian fathers preached to urge their listeners toward the virtuous life of the gospel, because, as Ledlow explains, quote, their situation, being rational creatures who were locked into a habit of evil choices and who were yet given the freedom to carry those choices out, signaled the possibility that humans too could lock themselves into their own lives of sin. Well, well I'm glad we could end this episode on such a rousing, moralizing note. You can just hear some cosmic parents scolding and wagging a finger. Don't end up like your big brother, the archdemon. He wasted everything we gave him. But there's also this image that I like uh, the Cappadocians understand humans inside the church consuming Christ sacramentally, just as Satan the Leviathan tried to consume him as a sea monster. And it reaffirms, I think, the ambition, the grandness of their theological project. Both humans and demons are fish swimming in the water that is God, whether they know it or not. They both need this source of all things. It's the air we breathe. It's the water the fish swims in. They, it's 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 gigantic and massive and essential and mundane and tremendous. That kind of makes you feel like this proper sense of perspective of just the smallness of being in in the world that is divinely infused and divinely governed. 
And it also makes the distance between the human being and other so-called evildoers, demons, all, all the smaller, I think. So I think like I give the Cappadocians a star for that kind of relativizing hugeness of their idea of God. Yeah, to dumb that down considerably, I would say that I I like the the way that the Cappadocians pull human beings into that cosmic world, into the abyss of all knowledge of everything in these ways that are sort of endearing from a human perspective anyway, by rendering the devil who, you know, gets caught on a fish hook as very similar to the way that human beings in the sort of origin story that Christians tell fall prey to things that are shiny, right? Like there's a similarity there that I think is also quite endearing and the possibility, of course, I'm, you know, shout out to universal salvation. Hey, Unitarian Universalists, I'm just Episcopalian, but I see you over there. So I'm going to, you know, there's a lot to love here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Shout outs to the awesome people leaving reviews on iTunes and other platforms you're better than all other people. And that means that you did not, you're not going to have to worry about the fish hook. So that's your, I think the reward, the cosmic reward is that you're all set if you do those things. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Those kind reviews are, they're water for these parched flowers. That is my psyche and soul. Uh, (laughs) And uh, yeah, see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the satanic ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.